This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the Hill Country Authors Podcast. Not only is the Texas Hill Country the most beautiful place in Texas, but it also has some of the best writers in Texas. On this podcast series, I'm going to explore writers in literally all genres of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I hope you'll join me in this journey. Today, Bob Lokander and Richard Shaw on their book, The Real World of Texas Politics. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and you're in for a real treat today because I'm going to talk to a couple of fellows named Richard Shaw and Bob Lokander. They have been involved in Texas politics probably as long as I have, and that's a long time. And we're going to geek out on Texas politics And frankly, there's not much more fun a topic than Texas politics. So, gentlemen, with that wayward introduction, first of all, welcome. And could you tell us, the audience, a little bit about each of your professional backgrounds? Okay. I'm Bob Lokander, and I recently retired from a teaching position at Lone Star College North Harris. I received my Ph.D. in political science from the University of New Mexico back in 1977. My teaching career in Texas started out at Lamar University in Beaumont. Uh, I went over from there to what used to be called North Harris County College in Houston, North Houston, in 1977. While I was there, I did additional teaching at the University of Houston, upper division political science classes. I also taught for the University of Houston Downtown College. So my life and career has been as a political scientist, Uh, primarily as a teacher and a lecturer, as well as someone who's written articles and reviews on Texas politics. So that's where I am right now. And we just finished our second book on Texas politics entitled The Real World of Texas Politics. I'm Richard Shaw, and I actually, my background is a labor movement. So I've been involved with the teachers union since 1970. I later ended up working for AFSCME, a public employee union here. I worked at City Hall a little bit, and then I worked for the AFL-CIO from 95 until 2017. And so I've been involved in labor and politics virtually all my professional life. And of course, there's a lot of politics. In- I probably should have also said that my father was a labor arbitrator for 35 years, a member of the National Academy. Been in that world too. Yeah. Gentlemen, you have written a book entitled The Real World of Texas Politics, and I've lived in one other state when I was in law school, so I've lived here my whole life, and I had thought this is just the way it is everywhere. Perhaps not. So what are some of the things that you guys have found in your careers that makes Texas politics so interesting? And I'm going to start with one of my favorite Ann Richards quotes. Texas politics is not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. One of the things that that I discovered, and I really got involved more seriously in studying and writing about Texas politics, was a decision by our state legislature, which they may regret now, but in 2013, the Texas state legislature mandated that all college graduates must take a one-semester course in Texas politics and government. And that really stimulated me to look at this more professionally. I had lived here, first first came to Texas way back in 1969, where I was stationed in the military at Fort Bliss. I returned to Texas with my teaching assignments, but in 2013, I primarily focused on U.S. government. So I started my study really seriously in 2013 to be able to teach classes to students. And from that, I began to kind of push the curtain back a little bit from what 
the average Texan had heard about Texas politics and the greatness of the state. And there are a lot of good things about Texas, but we really began to uh, think about this more in terms. We're all familiar with the classic situation of a debate where you have the liberal point of view and the conservative point of view. And inspired by the work of James Lamar, we began to kind of look at Texas more from a vertical perspective uh, with elites uh, and masses. And, and from that, we basically decided to write a textbook. And uh, I do want to put in a word about our third author who was unable to be with us today, and that's Kevin Bailey. Kevin's a longtime friend of mine, former teaching colleague, who served in the Texas State Legislature from 1990 to 2008. So I think that the insights we have in our book really come from having Kevin inside the room with Governors Bush and Perry and Richards and, and others, let's say, uh, along with our work. So I think that Texas is extremely unique, but I think what we try to do is to get it down to real terms. The average tech, are you being well served by Texas government? What are the pluses and minuses? And I think we've done a pretty good job of laying things out, whereby if people feel that to a large extent, I can defend that Texas is the greatest place in the world to live, or I can defend that Texas is perhaps the last place to live in. It just depends on where you fall in the social structure. So that's basically what we attempted to carry a theme throughout our book, looking at elite Texas and mass Texas. Texas politics and labor, that's been my focus since we first put started the Houston Federation of Teachers back in 1973. Texas is not a petri dish for the growth of labor. Let me just put it that way. We've been through we've been through Democrats, we've been through Republicans. I've seen both sides, all sides now. And I came out of the public sector and in the public sector you can't strike, you can't bargain. It's all can't can't. In the private sector we're out of the over 12 million workers, we've got about three, 400,000 maybe union members and the rest of them just have absolutely nothing. And Texas politics shuts all these other workers and they do everything they can to make sure that unions aren't going to grow. Workers are not going to have a voice. And that's just the nature. And then you've got another added group of workers in this state called immigrant workers that have been here since before Texas was a state. And, uh, and those workers are too shut or confined to some kind of an exploitative situation. So Texas politics for workers is rough and, and workers just almost seemingly never quite get ahead. Richard, let me pick up on that because Texas has been a right to work state since Taft-Hartley was passed in 1948. But in the 50s, 60s, and perhaps even into the 70s, we saw a large concentration of labor unions, particularly around the Gulf Coast and the petrochemical industry and other industries where there was a tradition of organization, a tradition of unionizing and those plants. Does that tradition still exist in that part of Texas or is that broken as well? No, that's still there. You look at the unionized workers in Texas, the latest figure we have is about 250,000 of them. And they are largely concentrated along the Gulf Coast in those refineries, concentrated in some of our other industrial bases in Dallas-Fort Worth, some of the aerospace plants. So we still have concentrations. We still have those same concentrations. <clears throat> we've got long, longshoremen here in Houston. We've got Seafarer. Uh, we've got, of course, TNT, the old Communication Workers of America. They're still around because we still have telephones. And uh, so we still have those same concentrations of workers. But what's different about those workers 
is that they don't come under the governance of the Texas politics. They come under the National Labor Relations Act. And so as long as you've got a National Labor Relations Board, you've got a president who's making sure that we've got good appointees on those boards, those workers are going to do okay because they're going to have a contract. So th they still exist, but as I said, the millions of workers out there don't have anything. Now, uh, what I've seen in my life lifetime is the growth in public sector. When we started the Houston Federation of Teachers back in 73, we started with 48 people. And that union now has 6,000 members. Across the state, we probably got around 30,000, 30, 40,000 teacher union members or school district members. So that's a growing sector, but that sector doesn't bargain. They can't strike, they can't bargain. And so they have to get everything they can through politics. And that's what, that's the newest union kind of on the, we've always had fire and police unions. Just recently, the city of Houston municipal employees got a union called Hope. And they actually bargain with the city of Houston. It's the only bargaining public sector union aside from fire and police in the state. So you've seen some growth there, but so what you remember is correct. They're still there, but it doesn't, they don't come near representing the vast majority of Texas workers. Bob, let me turn to you now because I'm also the son of a university professor or the, in the parlance of professor's kid and the teaching of Texas politics. So I grew up in Texas public schools where in seventh grade, we took Texas history before we took American history. And I was already interested in Texas history. So that course in junior, what we used to call junior high school fired my imagination and my love of Texas history. Did you find that this mandated course that you yourself immersed yourself in as a teacher really fired passions around students who maybe been exposed to Texas politics in a systematic way for the first time, or they just found it an incredibly interesting subject matter to study at a university level? I think looking at what's happened in the state, that Texas politics was always the stepchild for American government. When I went to Lamar University, they would hand off the course, which is an elective, to anyone who just arrived from Florida or Louisiana or Illinois. And it was just the, probably the worst course a person could take. That changed in 2013. The difficulty and the reason we wrote our first book, which was entitled How Texas Politics Really Works, is that Kevin Bailey and I were at the time uh, teaching. Kevin is still at a huge community college. We began to look at the scramble for national book publishers came into Texas and they drove into Texas real hard because they realized there's a change. There's a brand new market. Every college student's got to take this class. And so the big publishers came in. They recruited professors to write lengthy books, very long textbooks, standard type books that did a credible job. But for Bailey and myself, I've always seen myself as a fairly creative professor. I began to think about for most students reading a big textbook, for the best of students, it puts them to sleep. For the worst of students, it puts them in a coma. So that's why we decided to try something a little bit different to really hit the richness of Texas history and politics, warts and all, if you, if you will, and to give people a background so students can make their own choice. Uh, I don't think that uh, the charge being made about indoctrination is a little bit overwrought for political purposes. I think most of us just want to approach this in a realistic way. To be true to your beliefs, I always say to students, I can't tell you what party to vote for or whom to vote for, you've got to identify key values and issues and make your choices from there. And so that's what we try to do in the book. Throughout the book, to, to do this, 
And so we've gotten both praise and criticism from both sides of the aisle. One interesting point with our earlier book would be uh, one of the Republican judges in Texas told us that our first book ought to be required reading for all Texas college students. On the other hand, uh, people will tell us, you're too tough on the Democrats, you're too tough on the Republicans. When we hear that, we realize, you know what, I think we're about where we want to be and uh, to let the readers decide. But to your basic, I'm not so sure that uh, in a world of STEM, that those of us who have taught courses in government or history, we're fighting an uphill battle. A student uh, reaction is often, I've got to take this class. And uh, they're very casual uh, in the approaches that they take to the course. We try to enliven that a little bit, say, look, this is an important class. This is a class that can affect you, what the state does or does not do. So I'm happy that the state came up with a mandate. I wish that the, it would be, uh, from my experience, both at four-year schools and two-year schools, I think there needs to be an opportunity to step back and really provide a, a realistic history of Texas. And I think there are a lot of professors who do, but some are still a little bit frightened about this, given the climate in Austin and the word being dropped by some Republicans that maybe we need to repeal tenure, for example, at universities. And you can put the fear of God in the professors too. So this, these are times fraught with danger at colleges and universities. And so hopefully we can kind of weather through and that we can be true to our academic values. And that's to enlighten, to inform, and let the students ultimately decide to not make value judgments for them. So I am a lawyer, and I've always been intrigued by our system of selecting judges in Texas, which is by elections. I'm pro-election of judges, or traditionally have been, because I think democracy with a little d is a good thing, and that if a judge is not a good judge, he, has to, he or she has to stand every four years. The flip side of that is typically people don't evaluate individual judges and they're a down-ballot race that doesn't get a lot of publicity. And so it tends to fall if it's a midterm election. The party out of power in the federal government tends to win. And that means judges from that party get thrown out and we got a new set come in. And so sometimes good judges get thrown out and we had a in the 80s, for instance, we had a husband and wife who were in different political parties, and one got voted out one year, and the same year his wife got voted out. So any real thoughts on the system of selecting judges via elections, or maybe use that to a, a broader conversation about the elect- election system in Texas? Just recently, labor, labor had some run-ins with judges. I've, been, I've participated in, in screening judges for uh, well over 30 years, and there's very few things you can actually ask them. Uh, because they can't tell you how they're going to rule. But recently with COVID, we had a huge spate of people being thrown out of their apartments, evictions. And those evictions all go into just JP courts, justice of the peace courts. And locally here, we have, of all the judges that we endorse, probably the ones we we our members use the most our JP court court. They might be in there fighting a DWI. They might be in there fighting for their keep their license so they can work. And so we ran smack dab into these JP courts, basically backing the apartment owners and, and evicting people. Even though there was COVID money there, there was money to stop these evictions, and it was a real eye opener locally here for labor. It was probably the first time that I know of a couple cases where they actually went in and visited with those judges and said, look, we're just trying to keep our members in their apartments and there's all this money and these apartment owners can't be throwing people out. I I remember in Harris County when we had no all Democratic judges and then we had all Republican judges and then we finally started winning 
through the elections, all Democratic judges again. So I I like elected judges, but we we expect more out of those JPs, especially with our members getting evicted and other kind of job-related things that happen at that level of the people. Tom, I'm going to disagree with you and with Richard, and I am opposed to elected judges. The circumstance and situation is such that most good government groups, many former distinguished jurists at the highest level, Texas Supreme Court, for example, have argued against this. We need to perhaps think about the, about the Missouri plan, the merit system. And the, the problem that we have is that too often do we have uh, people who are judges or are they politicians? Uh, one of the things that we do in our book, and you're probably familiar with this because you've been a student of Texas politics for a long time like we have, is that 60 Minutes, a very popular CBS news program, 60 Minutes, did two particular shows, one in 1987 and one in 1998. And the title of both reports were, Is, Te- is Justice for Sale in Texas? And our answer was yes. And in both cases, they pointed the finger at the court back in 87 when they're all Democrats there. Because to a large degree, people who were upset with the court were those who represented corporate interests, insurance companies, and wealthy people. As Texas politics changed with the election of George W. Bush in 1994, and the court became all Republican, it suddenly became the those who had been had friends in high places in the, on the Supreme Court were now on the outs. It was basically wealthy people, corporations, insurance companies, hospitals who loved the Supreme Court of Texas now that Republicans were on board. And it was basically labor unions and consumer interests and public interest groups who felt on the outs. Now, there are exceptions on the court. There are people who are principled, but to a large extent, when I've worked in campaigns and Richard has worked in a million more campaigns than I have, there's something about people who run for office. They, they often lose their moral compass. They often lose their principles and their desire to be elected. So I will respectfully disagree with the two of you on that. There are reasons for elected judges. But the reality is, I think you pointed this out, there's not a lot of information out there. There are some good, solid people. I'll give you one example that on a wave election, the son of the current lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick's son, Ryan Patrick, was a well-regarded Republican judge in Harris County. And the Democrats came in during the Obama years. Ryan Patrick lost his position. So on these wave elections, it can uh, it can cause some people to be tossed out because they're wearing an R and a shirt and it's a D year, or they're wearing a D and a shirt and it's an R year. You've got to make a choice to a large degree. Is it going to be judicial independence or is it going to be public accountability? Either choice is fine. I tend to like to have a, a more independent court, and that requires, of course, the people that if we do go to a merit system uh, for governors to select qualified people, and I would include organizations like the Texas Bar Association. Uh, as a legitimate screening force, along with law school deans. And we want quality people, whether it's a Republican governor or Democratic governor. So I'll just uh, end my end my position right there. And you may be right. I may be wrong. I may be right. You may be wrong. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Who knows? So let me use that to move to a little bit broader discussion of one of the themes, I think, from the book, which is money in Texas politics. Money drives Texas. I didn't fully appreciate that until, once again, I left this state and realized People don't talk about money as much in other states or in other countries. And one thing I learned when I moved into the professional world was we all talk about that in Texas. And I grew up in Houston where it's it's truly an honored discussion, an honored topic. But where do you see the abuses even to this day of that system in Texas? And can we do anything about it? I just The vast majority of the workers, people that we represent, in our book are classified either as have-nots or have-sums. 
And we're talking about money. And they're not getting represented well in the Texas legislature. They're not on the minds in Austin of most of the of a majority, the present majority of the Texas legislature. So money's huge because we don't have any. And if you don't have any money, you're not going, you're not going to get the right people elected. I'm watching this Beto um, Abbott race right now. And Beto's finally, he's raising some real bucks. That's extremely rare for a governor's race, particularly up against a Republican governor. So as I see it, most of the workers don't have any money, and so we don't have any influence. And now we're trying to do things to counteract that. And of course, most of these people that don't have any money aren't voting either. So they're not voting, they don't have any, and the way they can influence politics is through voting, and they're not doing that. I think, Tom, one of the things that we do in our book, and it really starts out in the first chapter, is we cite a great political scientist who's, who's from Texas, who's passed away years ago, named Vio Key Jr., who's written, a, who's written a Bible. Now, it's dated now. The book is entitled Southern Politics, in which he writes a chapter on each of the southern states. He ended up at, dare we say, Harvard. Maybe that's a heresy in Texas, but he was a native Texan. And he stimulated us to, to think about this a lot. And in his book, in the first chapter, he says this about our state. He says, the Lone Star State is concerned about money and how to make it, about oil and sulfur and gas, about cattle and dust storms and irrigation, about cotton and banking and Mexicans. What a great statement about our state. But if you notice, the first thing he talks about is money. And then when it came around to figuring out what would we want on the cover of our book, I think you probably noted that the cover of our book has uh, a painting of the uh, Lone Star flag, but we've dropped the star and put in a dollar sign. In that regard, we all heard the statement, you can't tell the book by its cover. You can tell this book by its cover. So money is extremely important as a motivating force. And to a large degree, those that we identify as the have-mores and the haves. Let me indicate, we're talking about the have-mores in Texas. We're talking about the top 1% in income. People whose annual income is $15 million or more. We're talking about the haves. We're talking about people with incomes of a quarter of a million dollars a year. Most of us in Texas have incomes under 100000 The vast majority are somewhere in the twenty dollars to $50,000 range. Remember, we still have a very low minimum wage law. All economic indicators indicate as bad as things have been for working people in Texas, they're getting worse. The gap in the growing inequality in the state is, is getting worse than that. To a large extent, how do we attack this? As a political scientist, I'm saying we do it through voting, collective action, social movements, and it's not going to change overnight. Right now, we can say when I first came to Texas and it was in, the, in my teaching years at Lamar University, we used to kind of, I talked to the Texas historians, they said, Bob, welcome to Texas. We are a low tax state. And so I looked around Texas. I lived in in Florida and other places. And so I used to tell my students that we are certainly a, at that time a low tax state, but we're also a low service state. So now where are we today? Today, I would argue that we are a moderate to high tax state and a no service state. Uh, especially for those who are at the lower income scales. And that's where we, where Richard and his background in labor with working people can attest to a lot of things. We are a paycheck to paycheck society, especially here in, in our state. And most people have very few resources. To, there's no next day. The only rainy day fund exists in Austin with the legislature. For most people, an unexpected $500 bill just sends them reeling. And I, I'm a believer, I, I am pro-government. I believe that government can create opportunities for people. And the federal government has done this in the past. Our state government has been very limited because of those in power right now. It's not that they're trying to achieve more. 
They're just trying to maintain the status quo that has been so beneficial to their economic well-being and interest. So I would like now to turn to, if not the uniqueness of the form of state government, the format we have where the legislature meets every other year, the Texas governor, although certainly sitting in the bully pulpit, is has perhaps less power than other governors, and the interplay between the governor, the legislature, and then the permanent part of the government that exists full-time. Go ahead, Yeah. One of the things that about, about Texas, we were helped out a lot by our third author, Kevin Bailey, who spent 18 years in the legislature. If we think about it, Texas is an outlier. There are only four states right now where the legislature meets every other year. And Kevin, even in the best of times, and for Kevin, it would be being a Democrat when Ann Richards was governor, would say, we just don't have the time to do what we, uh, we only meet for 140 days, once every two years, an odd number of years. The next session of the legislature will begin in January of 23. But Kevin pointed out, and it was interesting being both, Kevin's both a political scientist and an 18-year state representative. He said, to an extent, the textbooks, and a lot of people ought to realize Although they say 140 days, given constitutional requirements and House rules, we only really have 62 days to get our because the first 30 days you can only file bills. You can't have, you can't have committee hearings. You can't basically vote up or down or add amendments. The exception being if it's on the governor's emergency list. Usually, governors will have a list of three to five items. So in that regard, the first thing that reformers would say would be, we need to go ahead. It would require an amendment. I'm not terribly hopeful of this to go to annual sessions. Now, as far as the governor's office is concerned, most political science studies looking from a comparative state executive standpoint would put the powers of the governor at, at the low end. I think most of us are well aware if you want real power as an official in Texas, be lieutenant governor. You are, in fact, head of the Texas Senate. I used to tell my students that lieutenant governor of Texas equates at the national level with the Senate majority. And uh, it's true that Governor Governor Perry, who's the longest serving governor we've ever had, used some informal powers to become a very strong leader, strong man leader, I should say. But as far as the powers of the office of the governor, they are extremely limited in that sense. I think where government is weak, we know in political science, it means that interest groups are strong. And in Texas, that may uh, that means business. From that standpoint, we get right back to the conditions that we've identified in our book. And you have to chip away at this. I'm a believer in incrementalism. This is not going to change overnight. Uh, this is a generational change. You know, I think we end up our book by saying our hope would be that in the future, Texas will become a moderate tax, moderate service state. So we're not expecting that we're going to be aligned with states that provide a lot more benefits and help for working people and poor people, let's say. That's not Texas. That's not the way the policies have been written or the laws are established. And if we look at Texas government from a labor standpoint, we don't even have a Department of Labor. I, in the book, I noted that that was driving through Arkansas one day. I saw a green exit sign for Arkansas Department of Labor. Even Arkansas has a Department of Labor, the home of Walmart. We don't have a Department of Labor. We have a workforce commission. We have an insurance department. We don't even require a workers for all employers. And so it's diffused. If you're going to do, do anything about workers, it's all diffused. And if you look at the department we do have, it's called the Texas Workforce Commission. Labor is a commodity of big business. It is not, it is not, it is not employees and people. And that's our Texas government when it comes to labor. 
I'd like to end with maybe your thoughts on the Texas Constitution. Many Texans may not know that our Constitution was written in 1876. We made an attempt to put forward a new Constitution 100 years later in 1976, but that attempt fell by the wayside. And is it time that we had a new Constitution that brought us in to the 21st century, or can we just keep amending the 1876 Constitution and hope for the best like we've been doing? It's interesting when you when you raise the question about the Texas Constitution, because there's a debate, and I've heard Texas historians argue this, there's a debate on how many constitutions has Texas really had. The official count that we use in our book is eight. Some people would say that's not correct. Some people would want to lop off the first two constitutions when Texas was a part of Mexico, the Constitution of 1824 and 1827. So some would start and say we have six if we begin with the Constitution of 1836 when Texas became an independent republic. Others might even approach it a different way. I think to a large extent what we see, and we refer to our Constitution as a can't-do constitution, This is a document of 150 pages of can't do this, can't do that. It reflects a time in Texas where, to a large degree, government was seen as a hostile force. What we're going to do is tie the government in knots. We're going to keep the legislators at home most of the time, weak powers to the governor. And suddenly, maybe the frontier experience may have had something to do with that. But we're in the the, basically the 21st century. A new constitution is long overdue. In the past, we've had several efforts. I think you, you indicated some efforts. We, we've had two, actually, in 1974 and 75. One was a full-blown constitutional convention. The other was a backdoor for by the legislature to get the voters approved eight propositions, which would have established a new constitution. We need a new constitution. But the difficulty here would be it's like anything else. If we're playing the politics of a zero-sum game, who would a new constitution benefit and who would it hurt? We think we modernize government, democratize government, basically take away some of the restrictions. I'm a great believer. The older I get, the more libertarian I get. Let the voters decide. Point of fact is the voters can't decide because the Grange and conservative Democrats back in 1875 made those choices for us. You can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, to a large extent. So it's a, we refer to it as a code book of laws. Professor Janice May of the University of Texas talks about a model constitution being simple, brief, and understandable. The Texas constitution is neither simple, nor brief, nor understandable. So I think that there are very few people in the legal or academic world who would say, we've got a perfect constitution. Point of fact is we don't. And other states have done this, but it's a little bit, we're in a, we're in a state where there's a strong anti-government ethos. And so you've got to begin to try to convince people uh, that government can be a helpful force, at least level the playing field. So I, I'd like to see a, a new constitution. What we simply have is we're adding amendments to amendments. I think if I keep track of this, our latest count as of May was we've had 517 amendments added, and we're always counting. And to a large degree, it's utter chaos and confusion for people. Yeah, we tease the readers of our books saying we give them a website where they can actually go online and view a copy of the Constitution. Most of us are familiar with our U.S. history books. Is our U.S. history book does not have a copy of the U.S. Constitution in the back of it. I realize that works are still used in classroom, but there's a lot of online education and things of that sort. But it would be helpful if students could actually see the document themselves. And that would require almost a computer and a zero in on page after page. New Constitution, yes. Fix of this going to be difficult.
simply because it's easier to say no than yes. It'll come after we get a Department of Labor. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this podcast. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on your book, on yourself, or really any of the topics we've touched on. What would be the best place for them to go? The best place to get our book is through Stony Creek Publishing. Our book is available on on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Those are good places to get our book. If, if they want to contact us directly, I have an email. It's called Shawtrek, S-H-A-W-T-R-E-K, at AOL.com. Shows you how old I am. And it's like Star Trek, but Shawtrek, and I'll be glad to answer any emails the readers have. But then go online and find us. Uh, either look under Richard Shaw, Bob Lokander, and they can find the book and find out more about us. Gentlemen, this has been a ton of fun. I would love to sit down with you guys over a dinner and just chaw all of this out at some point. So I wanted to thank you for the book. I want to thank you for your passion, and I want to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Bye. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hill Country Authors Podcast. I hope you'll join me again in a couple of weeks where I have another Hill Country author to visit with. The Hill Country Podcast has a sister podcast, which is the Hill Country Podcast. We are both proud members of the Hill Country Podcast Network. I hope you will check us out. Thanks so much for listening.